0: Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Women Today Podcast, a selection of our best bits from the past five days. And this week, we launched something new the Women Today serial, None Shall Sing by Zeba Clark. And if you'd like to listen to the whole of the play, in fact, our first ever play, from start to finish, you can also download the special podcast from wherever you got this one. But this week we've also been joined in the studio by some amazing guests. We heard from one young mum who's donating her time to helping children who don't have a very Merry Christmas and, in contrast, another mum who made international headlines with how she's treating her kids. We also spoke about a man who's never too far from the headlines, Donald Trump, and two women who are, quite literally, good Samaritans. But first, let's return to
2: a sensitive subject that we've spoken about previously. Now, you might remember that last week we had a conversation on Women Today about abortion and the fact that it is illegal on the Isle of Man to have one unless it is necessary to preserve the woman's life. The fetus is unlikely to survive birth or is seriously handicapped, the latter only up to 24 weeks, or within 12 weeks of conception if the pregnancy is caused by rape, incest or indecent assault. We heard from the Department of Health and Social Care, our resident GP, Dr John, as well as many of you. Now, here's a little reminder of just some of what we said on Wednesday's programme. Okay, let's open this one to the studio. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's clear that there's a, a lot of confusion around it. And um, so to, to boil it down to my understanding, I understand that very few abortions are actually conducted on the island. And when they are, it is purely for medical reasons or because it was a product of, of incest or rape. Therefore, nearly all, all abortions are conducted off-island and social abortions, so basically that unwanted pregnancy that we're talking about is still illegal here. Now, I am incredibly pro-choice. I believe that a woman has the right to choose what happens to her body, but I also do appreciate that there has to be, you know, constraints about time limits and that sort of thing on it as well. But For me, personally, I don't believe the current service on the Isle of Man provides women with that fundamental choice.
0: Yeah, I'm with you, Kate, entirely there. I do believe it's a woman's right. And, um, you know, I think we should legalise abortion over here. You know, until we actually had this discussion... I didn't even realise myself that it was illegal here. I didn't know, you know, and I think for me, it just shows the Isle of Man once again is actually behind the times. You know, we described this subject as sensitive yesterday. Um, I think that's because
1: people tend to have very strong views on it one way or the other. But personally, I don't think it's anything that someone can decide on unless they find themselves in that position. And i feel totally blessed I've I've never had to go through anything like this but it has happened to a couple of of really close friends of mine one who had something seriously wrong with her baby and another who found herself pregnant at a very young age and was just not in any position to go through with it the emotions in in both cases were extreme but I feel very strongly that the choice does need to be there and whatever
2: can be done to minimize the trauma really should be done. To pick up on what you say about trauma I think the part of it that really causes me the most concern I suppose is is about leaving the island. Well, over the weekend we received an email from one of our listeners. She wanted to tell us her story of what it was like to have to go through a termination just a few months ago and as we just heard to make that trip to the UK where she could have it done legally. Beth has a story for us. I was working full
1: time and just about to embark on a 3-year degree course here which I'd spent the last 2 years working towards. When I'd made my decision without much hesitation, I found myself researching local charities that could offer any kind of support or a point of contact with someone who could give me advice here other than a doctor, but this support was not found anywhere. In the sheer panic of realising that this would not be an easy arrangement, I rushed into booking everything to make sure it could be done and of course I then found myself getting into debt in order to fund the transport, accommodation and payment for this private procedure. As we know, the sooner you want to book transport, the more expensive it is, and teamed with the torture of waiting for an abortion, knowing the development of the foetus is progressing inside you makes money almost irrelevant. Since the procedure, what I've regretted the most is how I felt I had to rush into making that choice, even though given more time or reassurance that I would have probably made the same choice. This was followed then by the embarrassment of telling my employer why I needed two days off during the week, because at this point I couldn't afford to take any more days off work and asking my boyfriend to lie about why he needed two days off work, potentially compromising his job. The airport was, ironically, full of people I knew, some from school, family friends and people, all excited to be travelling across. Then came the questions, are you going anywhere nice? We had to lie again and say, shopping or just to go away for a few days. Having a good sense of humour, we laughed at the time, but the fear of bumping into someone we knew well to say, you never mentioned you were going away, was there even up until we arrived in Manchester. The procedure was what it is, painful, embarrassing and emotional, but also dignified and supportive. The strangest part being the moment when I was pulled out of a room full of women and girls to pay for the abortion on a chip and pin machine, making this very difficult experience all the more bewildering. The woman gave me the bill and was very sympathetic and apologetic about having to do it, stating that I should send the bill to the Isle of Man government. We laughed. I was sent home to the crisp white sheets and towels of a travel lodge hotel room to wait for my impending miscarriage, thinking how embarrassed I would be to make a mess or, God forbid, have to tell the staff why it looked like somebody had been murdered in the room. Among the pain, I managed to make myself what can only be described as a raft, made of clothes and the purple hotel bed runner on top of the bed to prevent any spillage. This went alongside agonizing checks throughout the night. All the time, I longed for the comfort of my bed at home and being able to relax and process what was a traumatic time. I was told I wasn't allowed to travel until 24 hours after the miscarriage, which meant the plane was the last flight of the night. At the airport, I felt fine. I was relieved that the horror was over and looking forward to being home where I could continue to recover. The plane took off and I began to feel immense abdominal pain, doubled over and crying amongst a plane full of people, whose some we probably knew. When we arrived at Ronalds Way, I literally crawled off the plane and then ran to the toilets to be sick. I was so ill that instead of getting a taxi home, I had to call my dad to save the embarrassment of lying to another person. When I got home, I rang the nurse at the clinic who told me that the high altitude was probably to blame for the agony. And I then had to face the reality of going to work the next day as I could no longer afford more time off. Since the procedure three months ago, I have healed emotionally and physically, but am still left with the shame and secrecy associated with abortion here. The point of this story is that for me, a strong, educated woman with little doubt about my choice, an early stage pregnancy, a strong network of friends, family and employers who have supported me, this experience was still horrific. Having spent time across, I was able to manage the stress and organisation of my transport, find the hotel and the clinic, but imagine having little to no experience of being in England, left alone there with overwhelming fears and the stress of the procedure. I cannot imagine how vulnerable young women and girls manage to even contemplate the very difficult, expensive and painful decision of having to go across for a termination. The Isle of Man government is doing a disservice to at least
2: half the population
1: of this island and it's shameful.
2: Beth S B with the story we were sent from one of our listeners. Well, this topic has certainly caught your attention and it's definitely something that we on Women Today will be returning to in the future. In fact, that same listener who sent us that story also informed us that her and a group of friends are in the process of writing to the relevant politicians on the island about what they think needs to change. We will, of course, be following this up and talking to those politicians as and when they hear from this group of people. So please do keep your thoughts coming in on this one at whichever side of the debate you're on. You can text 16616 Email women today at manxradio.com. Head to Facebook or on Twitter.
1: Now, he's never too far from the headlines, but Donald Trump has certainly made a mark on the media over the past 24 hours. And that is because the U.S. presidential candidate has called for a complete immediate ban on Muslims entering America. He's made the comments just days after 14 people were shot dead by a Muslim couple in Southern California. Here he is, but first a member of the Trump
0: campaign. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Until we are able to determine and understand this problem, our country cannot be the victim of horrendous attacks by people that believe only in jihad.
1: Well, when asked if the ban on Muslims entering the country included American Muslims currently abroad, his spokesperson said, Mr. Trump says everyone. And his Republican rival Jed Bush has accused him of being unhinged. The Council on American Islamic Relations says the tycoon's remarks are just shameful.
0: This is outrageous, coming from someone who wants to assume the highest office in the land. It is reckless
1: and simply un-American. Well, when Trump made the speech, the proposal was greeted by applause and cheering from his supporters and campaign team. But Muslim Nida Reham, who was attending a vigil for those killed in the California massacre, says his rhetoric is just dangerous.
3: You take people's fears and you turn them into hate. People act out and lash out and it makes me very afraid.
1: So Donald Trump has called for that complete ban on Muslims entering the United States of America. And this afternoon, we want to know what you think about his comments. Is he making a worthy point about needing to protect the USA from Islamic extremism or is his rhetoric unhinged, to quote Jed Bush, and dangerous? Let us know what you think on this one. Email uh, Today at com. You can text one double six one double seven. Go to the Women Today Facebook page. The uh, conversation carrying on on there online at the moment. Also on Twitter, it's at Today. Kate uh, what do you
2: reckon oh, do you know what my initial response to to Donald Trump in general is is to d- just laugh i think he is a caricature and his call for a ban on muslims entering a country is is just utterly ridiculous but i guess that is where i stop laughing because he is someone running for an incredibly powerful and you know internationally incredibly important position I just think this sort of language fuels hate and I think, to be honest, it it makes things worse and it's simply dangerous.
1: We were listening to this on the news this morning and my eight-year-old son said, and this is exactly what he said, won't that make Muslims cross and offend people?
2: (laughs) That's what's so incomprehensible about it, if an eight-year-old boy can see that. But I guess though on on the flip side that Trump has picked up on something because I think we, we all too easily say terrorism is not Islam and I really really agree with that sentiment but the fact is Islamic extremism is linked to religion and I don't think we can ignore that in its entirety but I'm, I'm not defending Donald Trump and his, his calls for a ban on Muslims entering America I think he is adding fuel to an Already worrying fire.
1: But here's the thing, you know, his thoughts must resonate with some Americans.
2: Yeah, and I think you can see that. Um, looking on Twitter, Donald Trump was trending for the last kind like, of twenty hours or so. And I really would defend anyone's right to to speak as they wish, to ha- hold the opinions that they they wish to hold. But, you know, you, you can't shout fire in a crowded theatre when there is no fire. And you should not be encouraging hate and, and the repercussions of hate, which ultimately, I think, could lead to violence.
1: Our guests in the studio today are Tracy Fuller and Leslie Mockton. Tracy, what are your immediate thoughts to this?
4: Well, I never thought I would be in a position to agree with Jed Bush about anything, but <laughs> I have to say that
5: today I'm, I'm right with him. Leslie? Donald Trump's talking from a political platform and normally when politicians have something contentious to say, they batten it down a little bit because they don't know what the media is going to do to them. He has said some of the most outrageous things. This is just one amongst many and yet he's getting away with it. He's not bothered. It's frightening. I think um, there was
2: there was uh, something I was reading this morning that I just thought was really interesting, which was an analysis of how much attention Donald Trump is getting um, in, in media across the world, not just in America. And and the fact that, yeah, he has set up this kind of platform for himself to be more and more ridiculous in a way. But the fact is, you know, he's still getting a lot of support. So he mm-hmm. obviously is tapping into something quite desperately worrying.
1: Uh, those are our thoughts. What are yours? Today at manxradio.com. You can text one double seven or go to the Women Today Facebook page or at Mr. Today on Twitter. James says, well done, Trump. He is a visionary. Uh, Moira says, terrifying that he was actually cheered, not jeered when he made this speech. The terrorists who perpetuate the bombing, shootings and killings call themselves Muslims in the same way the KKK call themselves Christian. They are thugs. Trump is calling for a group of people to wear symbols to identify their religion and is proposing severe curbs on their movement. He is playing on people's fears in the same way the Nazis did in the 1930s. Well,
2: Samantha uh, agrees with that sentiment, saying the world's next Hitler in the making. And Heather says it's scary that a man with such ridiculous hair is being taken seriously by anyone.
1: And Jackie says, having lived in America through an election, we should fear this man and his effect on people. For people to realise his failings, they would need to accept their own. It is a time of year when parents are being bombarded with requests from their children about what they want for Christmas. And I do think that now, more than ever, there's so much pressure to get the perfect present. Because I'm sure all of us want to make sure that our youngsters aren't left disappointed. But what if financially splashing out on presents just isn't an option? Well, our guest today is a young mother who's given this a lot of thought and wants to make sure that families who might not be on the radar but who are struggling don't miss out. Uh, Rachel Corlett, thank you so much for being here. What got you thinking about these particular families, first of all?
3: Um, I think it came from sat watching uh, my little girl watch telly last Christmas um, and she was reeling off all these different Christmas things she wanted. She was almost three Uh, you know, Ben and Holly, Peppa Pig, all the Disney things that cost a fortune, as all of us know. Um, And I sort of looked at her and thought, there must be children on the Isle of Man that as much as their parents work all year, you know, to try and help them, um, they just wouldn't afford to be, you know, be able to give them the Christmas that they deserved. Um, So I thought I'd do something about it. And what did you do about it? Uh, First thing I did was ring my mum, um, and mum knows absolutely nothing about Facebook. And I said, so I want to set up a Facebook page to help children that don't get what they deserve this Christmas. Um, what do you think of the idea? And she, she said, you know, she thought it was a really good idea um, and that I should just give it a whirl and see what happened. So I created the page, invited everybody to like it, and it really spiraled from there.
1: And the page is called Put a Smile on a Child's Face This Christmas. Yes. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but I'm sure it will nope. do by the end of the show. <laughs> um, and so this is not just for, for children who are particularly. Deserving in in any one particular area. It is looking at the overall picture of their family life.
3: Exactly, yeah. So the the Isle of Man's great for charities um, for children on the spectrum already. You know, there's lots of families under the care of social services and all the different um, areas on the Isle of Man, but there's nowhere in particular just for people that are struggling, Um, you know, whether it be because they work all year, they're a single-parent family, all these different reasons. Um, last year, for example, it ranged from a girl um, that had a heart condition, so her mum couldn't work because she was in Alder Hay all the time, to a woman who worked full-time, two jobs, three kids, and still couldn't afford Christmas. You know, it was a huge spectrum in between.
1: Well, we're going to be talking more about how the charity actually works and, and what exactly you do a little bit later. But, I mean, Rachel, you've had a, a pretty difficult year this year yourself and I guess have, have seen that that side of the struggle.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um I, I work myself. I'm I'm a, a young mum, like you said, so I've got nursery fees like hundreds of the other mums out there. Um and the bills do sometimes get on top of you a little bit. Um and I'm I'm not with Ava's father, so that obviously made um, an extra stress for me. And she's at that age this year now where she's saying, you know, mummy, I want this, I want that and you know, where's the limit there? It's it's difficult.
1: And in terms of of children's awareness, I mean Ava was only what three, just coming up to three last year, Um, and you know you're bombarded, as I say, with with those adverts, and the expectations of children naturally, I guess, are really high.
3: Yeah, huge. Um, And she's in nursery uh, full time, so all of her friends they're all talking about different things. Um, Ava's Frozen obsessed; everything's Elsa, and obviously Disney's not cheap, so. Um, you know, even the Elsa dolls and things—it all adds up massively. Um,
1: it, it can be really hard. And you say that there were times over the past year when you didn't know if you could afford to put fuel in the car, for example. Yeah. Um, how does it feel to be in that position?
3: It's hard. Um, I, there's, there's so many times I've driven to work in the mornings and thought, um, I'm not surprised. There's so many mums that stay at home until their children are in children are in school. Um, because it's so expensive. Uh, she, she don't get me wrong, her care is fantastic, but it's expensive. Um, and there have been days where it's been okay—fuel in the car, or you know, electric on the key, one or the other. Um, so I'm, you know, experienced this firsthand, and that's probably one of the reasons I, I designed this in the first place.
1: There will be some people who say children just need to accept that sometimes you can't afford everything. Um, what is the difference between making sure that kids don't miss out, but also making sure they're not spoiled?
3: Uh, it's a really good question and I I, um, I fight this a lot with um, some of my friends who spoil their children rotten. Um, my little girl's by no means spoiled um, but on the other hand deserves to go into nursery in the new year and say Santa, uh, my, my parents got me this, that or the other, you know. Um, it, it's a really fine balance. I, I, I don't know how you determine whether they're spoiled or whether they're deserving. It's, it's difficult.
0: Is it something amongst your friends that you have spoken a lot about? Do you feel as if they Find that pressure as well
3: yeah uh, one of my best friends is a single mum to three uh three boys the youngest one being my godson um i do spoil him rotten hands up i don't spoil my own daughter but i do spoil him um she struggles hugely at christmas so she is fully in support of the charity
0: okay i've got to pick you up on that <laughs> why do you spoil your godson <laughs> but you don't spoil your own daughter
3: he's got two brothers um so you know she's got to split everything three ways uh, for her kids I shouldn't spoil him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do. I, I, Ava's not. She's not spoiled at all. But if I get the opportunity to spoil Carl, I will do.
2: What do you think it is about the, about Christmas that just piles on the pressure? Because I, obviously I don't have children. I, I don't know what it's like to see it from that side. But I'd have thought that the pressure's always there. But is it just more paramount at, at Christmas?
3: Um, honestly, I, I'm on Facebook a lot. I, I genuinely <laughs> think it's social media. Um, you know, you... You go on Facebook on Christmas Eve and all you'll see is, look at all the presents my children have. Um, and there's the piles and piles. high. You know, a- Ava's got a, a sack full of presents that she'll be given on Christmas Day. And they're by no means the, the stories high that the rest of them are.
0: And it's not just social media. Before we really got into it, would you not agree? It's adverts because at this time well, of the year, the TV, kids are watching so much TV that the adverts are constantly on about what the presents are to buy for your toddlers, teenagers even.
3: Yeah, and there's things. I mean, I remember Ava last year. There's 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 little robot dogs and things. She didn't even know what it was, but because they put so many flashy lights and exciting, you know, stories with it, she goes, "Mummy, I want one of those." And and you you think turn these off. Just just put put normal telly on. Turn these off.
1: <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you so much for being with us. We will be finding out more about the charity later. But um, just speaking of Christmas presents, you've got a rather an expensive hobby. Are You looking for anything particular this year?
3: Um, If my father's listening, then a new clutch for the M3 would be fantastic. (laughs) What what do you do, rally driving? Uh, It's more hill climbs, yeah. We've got um, a BMW M3, a bit of a petrol head. I do enjoy it. And Me and my father are actually competing against each other in April, just gone. Um, He beat me by a second on the first hill, which I will never let him forget. But (laughs) Um, yeah, if he's listening, uh, a new paddle clutch would be fantastic.
0: Women Today, brought to you by Citywing.com for your next flight
1: away. And we have more on the Christmas story that's been making headlines here on Max Radio and also in the international press because a local mum has come under quite a lot of criticism over the past 24 hours for a photograph of her Christmas tree. Now, why? Well, it's because Emma Tapping's picture shows a mammoth pile of presents, approximately 85 for each of her family members, including the three children, and it's been reported she spends around £1,500 on presents. Social media has rather taken to the story with people calling her a benefit scrounger and criticising her for spoiling her children when there are others who go without. Well, Emma's been telling Kate more about the reaction she's had, her appearance on live television, and how the image made the headlines in the first place.
6: I put my tree up on the 30th of November and put a picture of a few decorations that me and my daughter had made um, on Instagram. I'm not Insta-famous. I've got like 250 followers or I did. And one picture of the tree, and the picture of the tree was a screenshot captioned by a lady and blustered all over Facebook. Um, the, the first thing I knew about it was um, a family member messaged me and said, Emma, isn't this your tree? I clicked on the post and it had 27,000 shares. So it literally had gone viral. I contacted this morning to basically put my side across as that it's being judged that I'm a bragging mother that's got loads of money that's gone out and spoilt my kids and this that, and the other. So I went on to say that, no, I'm not rich. You know, I mean, I do savvy shop as best as I can to get them the bits for, the, for Christmas and stuff. And then now obviously the papers have got hold of it. They've took pictures of me from my Facebook, even my old Christmas tree from 2012, they've took that as well. And basically it's being perceived that I've done this when this was done without my knowledge.
2: I think the thing that's really caught people's attention is just the vast number of presents in that picture, though.
6: Yeah, I think it's. I think that's caused a bit of mass panic for people that have gone, oh my God, I haven't started my Christmas shopping yet, or thinking, oh my God, that's far too much. And everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but I'm from a huge family. My mum's one of nine, my dad's one of four. We've always had big Christmases. We've always celebrated Christmas in a big way, and... I've just carried on the tradition to my kids. I always put a picture up on my personal Facebook page that's locked just to my friends, so they don't see the big deal of it, I don't see the big deal of it. And, you know, if you, if that's not how you do Christmas, that's absolutely fine, but that's it's my money, I'm not on benefits. It's how I choose to spend my money on my kids, and that's my prerogative.
2: You do have three children, 13, 9 and 16 months. And one report that I read about you said you buy on average about 85 presents for each of them. But you you would defend that?
6: Um, yeah, I will defend it. Uh, the girls, I do. You know, what I mean, that's totally true. The girls, I will buy, you know, up to... I do write everything down. So the problem is about 85 presents for the girls. The baby, obviously not. He's got about 30 presents under the tree. There's also presents there for me because my mum gives me money and I go and buy my own stuff so I've got something to open Christmas Day. Also my partner and also my mum's presents are under there as well because she spends Christmas Day with us as well.
2: Do you know what, Emma? I am just fascinated in the actual logistics of how organised you must be to have that many presents for each of your family already bought and wrapped.
6: How do you uh, how do you get started? Um, I literally start day after Boxing Day. I've been, I, you know, I do the sales, I do voucher codes, I do coupons. I've done it for a couple of years that I will try every trick in the book to get a couple of pounds off here and there. Um, it's been accused that it's all tat from a pound shop. It's it's not, that's not bragging, but it's not. I buy things that I think that they'll like. I think, oh, I can't wait to see her face when she opens this. I can't wait to see his face when he opens that. I shop all year round. I hit every sale. I know a few tricks on my sleeves to get to the sales and things like that online and in the shops in Douglas. And um, I start wrapping in August.
2: That must take you you months then to get all the wrapping done.
6: It does, yeah, but all I do is I wait till the kids have gone to bed, I stick my soaps on, I'll wrap a few few prezzies, I'll box it up and then I know it's all it's all ready for Christmas and then I haven't got the hassle of December mad shopping thinking, oh no, I haven't got this and I haven't got that, it's all done and dusted.
2: How do you keep the kids away from them when you, you start buying them straight after the Christmas the year before?
6: I just stash them away. If I can't stash them here, I'll say to me, mum, can I stick a couple of boxes in your loft or whatever, you know what I mean? I'm quite lucky that they won't go rooting because i've always said to them if you look and you find it i'm giving it away
2: so how do you remember whose is whose i mean do you put names on them as soon as they're wrapped
6: yeah i put name tags on everything and then i write everything down that i've bought and who for so i know exactly who's got what how many they've got you know um the girls do write a christmas list they only put about 10 things on but i always try to make sure i get the bits that they want on on their Christmas list. So I make sure I tick that off. I am quite organised. I have lists for everything.
2: And does Father Christmas visit as well? Does he bring stockings?
6: Father Christmas does come. He brings a little sack each for the kids with a few prezzies in and their main presents in. It's been blasted all over the internet that, oh, some kids don't get, you know, they get more than others and it's not fair and this, that and the other. My kids get from Father Christmas, he does his bit, he brings them a little sack with a few little bits in and their main present that they've asked for from him.
2: How do you feel when it comes to kind of November, December, when the adverts start saying this is the the present you must get this year, this is the one thing every child is going to want, when you've already got so many other ones? I mean, do you just get that as well
6: no 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 i don't get that as well i always have a rough idea you know what i mean sort of leading up to august september i have a rough idea of this, what they're going to want and i'm very lucky that they've got grandparents that all chip in to their main presents. so it's not like i'm buying all this stuff and then going out and buying 600 pound phones or whatever i have a rough idea of the things that they're going to want for their main presents. what father christmas is going to bring but the other bits that are under the tree they're from mom And I know my girls and I know my son and I know the things that they like and they don't like. So I know I can shop all year round and I know come Christmas Day they're going to love what they've got.
2: What do you think of people like me who haven't even bought a single Christmas present yet?
6: I think, you know, each to their own. Everybody's different, aren't they? I am sort of militarily organised with most things, Christmas especially, but birthdays, you know what I mean, Um, anniversaries, whatever it is, but... uh, I love a celebration as well. I think, you know, I get excited for it. But if you haven't bought one, then, you know, this time. Don't worry.
2: As you mentioned before, you have been judged by a lot of people who've seen these pictures of you and your Christmas tree. Yeah. What do you want to say to them?
6: I think the first thing is, not so much the people on the Isle of Man, because a lot of people do know me on the Isle of Man and they've stuck up for me, they've had me back because they know I live and breathe my kids, I work, I'm not claiming benefits or anything like that. I think the people that are judging have to remember there's three little kids involved in this. This has gone viral without our knowledge and this is the way we spend Christmas and if I want to spend my money on my kids, then I will do. They you know, it's up to them how they spend their, their Christmas. I won't judge them but don't
1: judge me. Emma Tapping, the mum who's come under fire for a picture of her Christmas tree that's gone viral, speaking to Kate. I'm just wondering if I can follow her lead and start my Christmas shopping the day after Boxing Day. It will mean that uh, there'll be no presents this year, though, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh, I
2: see. Shopping for this year. Very good, Beth. A couple of comments coming in.
1: Um, Brian says, I buy my kids loads of presents at Christmas. In fact, all year round, nothing I like better than spending my money on my kids than on myself. Yes, my kids might be spoiled, but they're certainly not ruined. And Gary says, it works out about £350 each. Most parents spend that one phone one xbox one tv one bike what's the difference if you work hard and love your kids why not and our guest this afternoon is tanya anderson from lovely greens which is a company aiming to help us enjoy the simple pleasures introducing nature back into our lives and reconnecting with the experience of making things but tanya do you know what and i'm going to speak for myself here making is not for everybody
7: it might not be um but it's also the idea of you can't make something You might have that implanted in your mind. Oh, I'm not creative. Oh, I don't know how to bake. I don't like cooking. But I think it's opening yourself up to that and just trying it. I I think that there's something really rewarding in just trying to make something, whether it's for yourself, for your children, You know, just bringing that into your life, pulling yourself away from the screen, pulling yourself away from the stresses that you come home to after work, and just doing something like that can be very, very rewarding. So what sort of things do you make then? Well, to there's a couple sides to my business and one thing that I do make a lot of is handmade soap because I sell handmade soap and I'll tell you every single time I make a batch of soap I get into my zone And it's almost like a meditation. I'm very mindful of everything that I'm doing and the process, how I set things up, how I make things. And then by the end, I feel like I've really accomplished something. And I have, because each batch is 72 bars of soap. Does your
2: house just smell absolutely phenomenal, then? It
7: does. But you know what? I'm so used to it that... You know, I can't really smell it so much anymore, but everyone who comes to visit or if you come for one of my soap making lessons, you walk in the door and it's like, oh, it smells so nice in here. I quite like the idea of making soap, actually, because it wouldn't have to be necessarily perfect looking, would it? No, absolutely not. It can be completely rustic. But the thing is, is that with my soap making classes, they're just so structured that I'm there with you the entire time and you go home with soap that is going to be soap and it's going to be great. And I do it in two sessions, actually. So the first, the first batch, everyone's really nervous and they have a little break. And and going into the second batch, everyone feels very confident. Beth, if you do this, can I have a present from the second
0: batch? Because I'm worried (laughs) by the first batch I may come out in a rash. That's the only thing. I'll be be absolutely fine.
1: Um, You talked earlier about um, beekeeping, you referred to beekeeping. Now, this is something else you do. How did you get into that?
7: Oh, I just, when I moved to the island, I was just interested in learning to do so many more things that I was interested in, but didn't really know. So I, I found out about the Isle of Man beekeepers and they offer a beginner's class every January. So it's coming up very soon, very reasonable price, reasonable price. So I thought, okay, I'll try this. Um, and I got started there. I met a lot of local beekeepers, a lot of newbies like myself.
2: <laughs> newbies,
3: yeah, nice. newbies.
7: <laughs> 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 ha ha. Um, and then... It actually took me another year to actually get my hive. Um, But it was fantastic. There were, you know, practical lessons. I got stung for the first time that I could remember before then. Um, Now I get stung a little bit more often, but, you know.
1: That's the thing that would put me off, I
7: think. Well, I went to a beekeeping talk recently, and the fella who came over from Northern Ireland says that getting stung a lot is being linked to lower chances of getting arthritis and cancer. I don't know if there's truth in it, but he presented that.
0: Oh my goodness me, I wouldn't put myself through that, I don't think. (laughs) So what is your tip if you do get stung by a bee? What's the best thing to do? Uh,
7: Some people react in very extreme ways. A couple weeks ago, I had to cancel a crafty event that I was holding for my friends because I got stung on the hand and my hand absolutely blew up. Um, It was swollen for a good couple days after that. Um, in that case, it was no different from an ordinary bee sting and you just have to wait for it to go down a bit. You can, you can take antihistamines if you have really, um, terrible responses, but.
1: I'm interested in, you just talking about taking antihistamines there. What is your view, given the, the sort of lifestyle that you want to lead on taking things like medicines?
7: I think that anything in moderation and everyone is different. I'm not against you know conventional medicine or conventional therapies it's just understanding what they are and your system in your family and your ethics and it's just about knowledge isn't it
1: well you accept that modern medicine does have a place but you also think that sometimes doctors and hospitals don't always have the answer i mean in what sort of ways
7: i think that there are a lot of natural remedies that you can use at home for example I grow a plant uh, called Valerian, and if you have issues with getting to sleep or calming or needing to be calmed down, you can grow that and have it as a tea and it doesn 't have any side effects it 's completely natural but there 's lots of other different types of herbs that you can use for indigestion, even peppermint, which people have in their in their gardens anyway, which is very common. You can use that as a medicinal herb.
1: There's so much to to your business, Tanya. We could be talking all afternoon about it, but we are um, coming up to Christmas, only 15 days. Um, Joe hasn't bought me enough presents yet. <laughs> um, if people want to give those sort of personalised Christmas presents, they want to have a go at making stuff themselves, what sort of tips have you got for us?
7: There are lots of beaches on the Isle of Man, and I think especially with all of the storms that we've had recently, there'll be a lot of sea glass being thrown up. I think it would be a wonderful thing to go out for a walk on a clear day, find some sea glass, maybe some stones, and I have a great tutorial on my blog. You don't need any glue. You just need a couple of glasses, some sea glass, and you can make a beautiful candle votive. You know what you're getting, don't you?
0: You know. (laughs) Have you got any time to go for a walk? Oh, yeah, it's fine. It's all (laughs) fine.
1: But, uh, Tanya, you must be a nightmare to buy for because, you know, you make all these beautiful things for other people, presumably for your your friends and family. Um, Do you turn your
7: nose up at a gift that isn't homemade? Absolutely not. Actually, I've had friends think that. That's just no, not at all, not at all.
1: We heard from Emma Tapping earlier about her Christmas and obviously she's come under um, for some pretty harsh criticism because of the way that she deals with present buying at Christmas. What did you make of that?
7: It's different from how I would approach Christmas, but to each their own and if she has her reasons and um, it's her upbringing and her family tradition, you know, why should anyone have anything to say about it?
1: For some people, there are times in their life when they really feel that they have reached rock bottom, that there's nowhere else to turn, and the only thing they think will make things better is by ending their life. Our guest today has been there. Tracy Fuller,
4: tell us your story, first of all. Um, I reached that point when I was very well, fairly young. I was 18. Um, I had been through a period of depression, which perhaps I didn't recognise as that at the time, but retrospectively... That's that's what was happening to me. Um, And I felt very alone with that. And it was very difficult to just get through each day. And in the end, um, I took an overdose of the antidepressants that had been prescribed by the doctor.
1: Have you any idea what triggered that depression? Was it more of a a chemical thing or a life event?
4: Um, There were quite a few different things I'd been through um, that I think probably just got to a critical mass and it became more than I could cope with and then I guess the, the depression was a reaction to that.
1: You reached that point then where you, you thought about ending your
4: life, you you attempted to end your life. What happened then? Um I was living at home with my parents and so it didn't really get very far because I was discovered and whisked off to hospital and I wasn't terribly happy about that, but I didn't have any control over it. Um I think I was—I felt I was treated a bit like a silly girl, um, and I had to—I had to get back from it, and I did get back from it. Um, but there was nobody I could really tell where it had come from. There was nobody I could talk to about where it had come from. There was nobody I could share it with without being patronised, and so it was a very difficult, um, difficult time for me. So how did you build your life back up again then? Day by day, I think. Um, and I was young and resilient, I guess.
1: How does it feel looking back at that period of time now?
4: Looking back, I think I would like to give my younger self a hug because I can see how um, unsupported, perhaps, I was and I didn't know where to turn or who who to take it to.
1: It was the the catalyst then for you joining the Samaritans, an organisation which reaches out um, to people who are in similar positions. What made you decide to join them?
4: Well, I joined Samaritans 20 years later, so it had obviously been on much of a a backburn since since then. But I guess I I saw an advert, and I think sometimes that happens. It's just the way things come together. I, I saw an advert in the paper at a time when I was looking for something extra in my life to to give me a sense of doing something useful and Samaritans was there and of course it chimed a chimed with me because of what had happened to me in in the past.
1: At that point you were a single parent you had a seven-year-old you were also working full-time in the finance sector so how did you fit that volunteering into your life?
4: It actually worked quite well because my son went to his dad's one evening a week I got that agreement we set that up together, um, and that gave me a free evening when I knew that I could go and, and do the volunteering. And in actual fact, it carved out a space in the week, which was, for me, which was quite nice.
1: But essentially, what you were doing, I guess, is giving something back and supporting people who may have, have traveled a similar journey to you. Yes.: Well, we're also joined in the studio today by Leslie Mutton, who is the deputy for recruitment at Samaritan's Isle of Man. Um, Leslie, why did you join the organization? I
5: came from a very different place to Tracy's. Um I had no contact or a real awareness of Samaritans before I joined. I'd been made redundant about three years ago and uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to go back into full-time work or to take part-time work. So I thought that what I'd do while I was thinking about this was to do some voluntary work. Um, now I'm quite ashamed to admit this, but I looked at what skills that I had to see where they would best fit, and I thought, well, I like talking a lot, and I like giving people advice. I think maybe Samaritans is the thing for me, and I'm 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 so shamed now because in Samaritans I realised once I was very short way through the training that you actually don't talk a lot, you listen very, very hard. And you certainly don't give any advice. You help people find their own answers. But that really,
1: it does go against the grain in many people, doesn't it? Because your automatic response when somebody comes to you with an issue is to tell them what you think and to maybe advise them about what they should do.
5: Oh, absolutely. And um, I had to sit on my hands for a little while. um, But I will say the training completely cured me of that desire. People will actually come on the phone sometimes and say, I have no idea what to do, tell me the answer. And of course you can't tell them the answer, you can only help them find their way to their answer.
1: Now, do you know, I always thought that if you were a Samaritan, there was almost an air of secrecy about it, particularly, you know, living in a place like the Isle of Man, because confidentiality is is just so key to it. Um, But, Tracy, it's okay to tell people that you're a Samaritan.
4: It is. It it used to be very secret, and I think that was because um, we used to operate on the Isle of Man, just taking calls from people on the island. And so it was important that the people that were volunteering were not known to... They di- people didn't know that they were volunteers because it might be your next door neighbour and it might put people off calling somebody if they th- knew one of the volunteers um, I think things have changed because we're now part of a national network and so we take a lot of calls from the UK a lot of local calls go to the UK that chance of um, talking to somebody that you know is, is very very tiny so w- we're now able to be much more um, open about being volunteers and I think that helps because we can then talk to others about our experiences
1: has it ever happened that you've spoken to somebody who you do know? No. That is quite fortunate. And I don't know of many
4: occasions when it has. It's very, very rare.
1: Just thinking about the Samaritans as an organisation, because I think the idea of the Good Samaritan does have a deeply religious connotation to it. Is there any religious basis to the Samaritans' organisation?
4: None whatsoever. It was actually set up by an Anglican priest, but um, other than that, no. And I think... It's quite a difficult thing for us to overcome sometimes, the name Samaritans, because although it's a very well-known name, it does have that religious overtone. But no, there's, there's absolutely no religious agenda at all.
1: And one of the key things, and we'll talk about um, what's needed in a volunteer a little bit more later, but one of the key things um, is the non-judgment aspect of mm. the work you do. And in the same way that, you know, not giving advice to people can sometimes be a struggle. I mean, your natural instinct sometimes is is to judge people on what they say and what they tell you.
4: How do you make sure that you don't do that, that that doesn't come across? I think it goes back to what Leslie was saying about the training. Um, I see the training as a set of filters, of, almost, because on one hand it gives you skills and, and how to deal with, with different types of situations, but it also helps you to filter out that your own opinion um, it helps you to filter out that natural urge to give advice. Um, and it really it makes us realise how important it is that we don't talk about ourselves. So it's everything in the training is about focusing back on the caller and giving them a, cle- a clear, safe place where they can talk um, w- without fear, really.
1: Leslie, some of the calls that you must have dealt with over the past two and a half years, I guess some of them must be deeply distressing... How do you, as volunteers, deal with what you're listening to and what you're
5: hearing? The training does cover this. So it, it gives you um, that confidence and that ability to be able to cope with, as you say, some quite distressing calls. Um, but the setup up within Samaritans is that you are continually supported. You never do a duty without another Samaritan. So there will always be two of you there. And by our nature, we're sensitive to what's happening to the other person. So even though you're deeply involved, perhaps in your own call, there's a tiny little bit of you that's thinking, is my colleague okay? And so we're watching out for that. And then at the end of each shift, you'll debrief with a leader. So you will talk through the calls with your leader so that you don't take them home with you. Well, as I say, we'll be um, hearing more a little bit later about what it
1: takes to to be a volunteer. Um, But, Tracy, something I'm quite interested in, uh, since you started 12 years ago, not only did you meet and marry a fellow Samaritan, (laughs) but you have
4: two Samaritan babies. That's right. Well, they're not babies anymore, actually.
1: So uh, a very united organisation, I guess, in terms of the friendships that you you form as volunteers.
4: Yes, absolutely, yes.
1: Thanks as always to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at MRWomenToday on Twitter and you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock.
2: Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane
1: right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth,
2: amazing speeds, and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast
1: Plus Broadband from Shore. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey, and
4: Port Erin, or click Shore.com.
6: Love being sure.
4: Tons and conditions apply.